Welcome to another episode of Imposters Anonymous. As usual, if you're new to the podcast, I strongly encourage you to pause and take a moment to listen to the intro to the show. It's technically the first episode and is about seven minutes long, provides some pretty important context about the nature of this project and how it differs from most. Otherwise, if you'd like to skip the housekeeping altogether and just jump forward about a minute and a half and listen for the music, no hard feelings. There's not too much to report beyond that the project is continuing to grow its online presence. So if you're enjoying the show, for better or worse, we are now on Instagram and Twitter. So you can follow us there for some additional content or to reach out directly. But still, the best way to support the show is through subscribing to our Substack, which is a newsletter that offers supplemental content and in time will offer more interactivity for the AI community. That can be found at impostorsanonymous.substack.com. As I'm sure you know, any support is quite meaningful and helps grow the project. So I'm always trying to improve and expand things here. So reviews on Apple Podcasts certainly can help make that possible. But that's all for now, and I hope you enjoy. You don't know how lucky you are being a monkey. for joining. The simple act of, of giving a project like this a shot is uh, an act of goodwill that does not go unappreciated. So for the first time, it's just me on the mic today, for better or worse. We're about 15 episodes into this whole project now, and I figured it was about time that I try to take stock on how things are coming along and evolving, as well as try something a little different with my format here. So for those of you who have been following the project since its beginning, or at least have heard a couple episodes of the show, it's quite possible that a reasonable question has crossed your mind, as it certainly arises in mind from time to time. Why keep things anonymous? For all the barriers it presents, why is that the hell to die on? Is protecting identity really that important? Could this really be that big of a problem if virtually every other successful podcast out there thrives using the guest, description, qualification, content model? Well, I'd like to clarify a few things there. Firstly, I don't actually believe that anonymity is a fundamental prerequisite to delivering my audience genuine, uninhibited conversations where the content and its quality or insight remains the focal point. I simply believe that given our current cultural climate, it's, it's been incredibly hard for even well-intended, non-bigoted people to consume anything without filtering it through a handful of lenses that frame and distort our expectations before we even have a chance to try to be good stewards of intellectual honesty and non-judgment. And to be fair, some of that's just a part of being human. We are essentially built to categorize, to label, to judge to simplify, to make our movement through the world less chaotic and nuanced. Now, of course, cancel culture, identity politics, racial essentialism, and social media all contribute to the unruly mess we're all trying to sift through here, but 
My point is more so that a large portion of this tendency cannot be avoided. And I'm not so naive to think that simply not introducing my guests or leading with their Instagram bios is some sort of silver bullet. But it does give the audience at least the chance to form that critical first impression without knowing exactly which bucket to place this person in. And sure, some of my guests may choose to share information that makes it quite easy to identify or label them. And at this point, a committed listener could piece together a decent profile of who I am on paper based on what has come up in my conversations. And honestly, that's fine. I always knew that in time, my audience would get to know me on various levels and that this relationship and understanding would build from episode to episode. At the end of the day, anonymity is more about giving myself and my guests in particular the opportunity to disclose what we'd like to disclose as it becomes relevant and to be free to not be completely defined by it up front. This not only frees the guest up to simply be themselves and explore what they're compelled to explore, but maybe more importantly gives the audience an opportunity we rarely get in this modern world. To be clear, I don't think the solution I'm putting forward is the only or best one. I would love to live in a world where things like race and sexual orientation are as important as whether or not your earlobes are detached. A world where individuals are simply regarded for their personalities and ideas and character and experiences. If I ever end up having children, that's the world I want them to live in. But we're simply not there yet. There's a lot of work to be done. But I'm skeptical that we get very far in the right direction if we don't take a serious look at how much weight we're allowing these immutable qualities and a host of arbitrary labels we place on one another to carry. I know I'm starting to creep into the territory I've covered somewhat thoroughly in my intro, so I guess I'll try to leave it at that. But I do think it's genuinely important for me and my audience to be continually reminded of why this project exists and why where it diverges from other podcasts is non-trivial, even if it means that a lot of people will never give this a chance, largely because there's not a smiling face on the logo or website or social media page. Ultimately, that whole rant is, is only a portion of why I'm taking time to do this solo episode. So to be completely honest, I, this past couple weeks have been really fucking challenging for me on a pretty deeply personal level. And I of course know that I'm not alone in that. So here we are. And I'm hoping to maybe allow some good to come from that. Life is suffering and I'm Certainly not blazing any trails by saying that. No one really escapes this reality. I'm sure a portion of my audience knows all they need to know about where I'm coming from already. But in case there's anyone who feels like I'm coming a bit out of left field with that claim, I'll spell things out a little bit more clearly. Some people make it pretty far in life with sound bodies and brain chemistry with the chaos and tragedy of life largely at bay. For many, it's only when their bubble of stability or good fortune and perceived control is inevitably breached by this mayhem of existence that a certain perspective is thrust upon them. Of course, there's no shortage of evidence that people are unfairly suffering all over the world, all the time. You can hardly get an oil change or find the nearest CVS without being bombarded with a distilled version of this most uncomfortable truth. 
You would only need to spend a moment in the psychotic ward of a publicly funded psychiatric institution or a civil war-torn country where children carrying AK-47s strung out on a mixture of cocaine and gunpowder is hardly remarkable to alter the way one thinks about human suffering forever. But luckily, most people, especially most people listening to this podcast, will never experience these things. For most people, these realities remain on the fringes of their minds until occasionally something, in this case me, puts them briefly in focus. We feel bad, we lament, we fleetingly fantasize about fixing the world's problems, and then we move on with our lives. It is largely only when the bullet finally makes its way around to the chamber and life hits you or someone you love with one of those heart-wrenching, senseless situations do we find ourselves with no choice but to regularly grapple with the sort of pain and suffering that is fundamental to life as we know it. As far as I know, there's hardly a simple non-religious way, non-religious way of navigating or at least justifying that harsh reality. Yet here we are. I don't say any of this to depress anyone, but this condition we find ourselves in is what it is. I come to you a completely agnostic person, and in contrary to what may seem true from what I've just said, I assure you I have a deep love and appreciation for existence and my fleeting human experience. I really do love my life and do my best to cherish and enjoy it. This by no means suggests that I'm immune to all the fundamental and unfortunate realities I've hardly scratched the surface of. It just means that I've been fortunate enough to maintain a decent relationship with the finely tuned pendulum between the peaks and valleys that typifies life. Like any relationship, the health and sustainability of one's relationship to life itself thrives off a consistent effort to repeatedly fall back in love. The value of those day-to-day moments that remind us why life, for all its unfairness and imperfection, is still an incredible, irreducible journey worth remaining invested in. It is only natural for resentment and apathy to build without these reminders. Now, to be clear, any regular listeners are probably already aware that I would argue a mindfulness or meditation practice of some sort is likely the primary life raft we have in this life to reveal the acceptance, patience, resilience, stillness, awareness, and sometimes even detachment needed to overcome the storm from within. But I also can acknowledge that sometimes beating the drum on meditation has become too common, commercialized, or misconstrued to be something that offers much real utility for people who are struggling with existence right now and haven't found a formal mindfulness practice to be a suitable or accessible tool. So today I'm going to try something a little different and explore the experiences and methods that I found to reliably remind me of why I have a profound love and curiosity for existence. As a final note on the matter, I think everything I'm about to share can be deepened to a nearly limitless degree by regular meditation, but that's kind of beside the primary point, and I hope that what I have to offer is useful to as many people as possible. Some of what I put forward here could probably be interpreted as ordinary or simple, and to some extent, that's intentional. As I personally believe, this rightfully represents what is often most fulfilling and delightful in life. So to start, in no particular order, the 
first experience I found meaningful is singing and dancing alone. It is nearly impossible to pity someone who is utterly lost in song and movement with no regard for the outside world. In times of hardship or insecurity or fear, it's easy to lose track of the role music plays in our lives. To sing and dance alone in any capacity is to remind ourselves of the somewhat mysterious capacity and intelligence of our bodies. To be clear, one's talent or skill by any conventional measure has little bearing on the inspiration, connection, and emotion that come from this experience. I understand why this insecurity could be a significant barrier. To simply let go of all reservations and pick up the baton left for us by some distant persons we find ourselves now deeply in relationship with can be genuinely transformative. We spend so much of our lives trying to be socially acceptable, measured, worthy of praise, or even just indifferent, which is why it can be so valuable from time to time to just drop all of this and explore what we're compelled to express. You could argue this could be found in all forms of, I guess, private art, but I find song and dance to be ideal for keeping the bar low and maintaining a sense of support through the music itself, whereas staring at a blank canvas with a box of acrylics can be quite paralyzing and intimidating. For many, this probably already is a somewhat daily occurrence, and and if so, I'm quite happy for you, but for those who cringe at the thought of it or just don't find uninhibited song and dance to be appealing, I still encourage you to give it a shot, as awkward as it may seem at first, and see how making a habit out of it just affects the way that you feel. Just throw on your favorite song. I, I find something that evokes your adolescent years to be a great place to start and let it move you. If you're not necessarily a music person or haven't found music to be particularly inspiring in your life, I guess I'll take the opportunity to insert some of my own preferences and say that anything by Ella Fitzgerald or Otis Redding or Nina Simone is pretty evergreen and almost guaranteed to make you feel at least something. So moving on, the next experience I'll put forward might seem a little abstract for some, but without getting too far into the weeds on it, does have some compelling research to support it. So for lack of a better expression, we'll just call it hugging trees. I don't mean this in the traditional conservationalist or environmentalist sense. I I simply mean establishing some sustained physical contact with the tree, ideally of a decent size or age, really. It's similar to what is often referred to as earthing or rooting, which typically involves having barefoot contact with the ground and seems to have its own set of related benefits. But what I'm talking about is a bit different due to the overlooked characters of trees in our world or planet. In the most literal sense, trees are sturdy. Placing your hand on a tree provides an immediate sense of support. They often provide food, shelter, shade, and at the very least oxygen to the life of our planet. There's no arguing the value that trees offer, but if you just take a moment to reflect on what trees endure throughout their lifetimes, it can really offer an interesting perspective on stillness and resilience. From the outside, it often seems as though they do nothing. And though a simple time-lapse video will quickly dispel that idea, it's easy to forget that every tree reaches maturity 
through overcoming some of the worst of what the natural world has to offer. Every storm, blizzard, drought, they remain firmly grounded in the same spot. When the storms of life rage, it feels natural to seek comfort and board up our windows. And to some extent, during the worst of storms, maybe that's what we need to make it through. But trees don't really have that luxury. They face it all and persevere day after day, year after year, and for many century to century or even eons. There's something about coming directly in contact with a life form that faces this stoic reality that I found to be quite grounding and even inspiring sometimes. I'll admit I have some transcendental and Buddhist influences that might enrich my, <clears throat> enrich my experience here, but I think there's something real to be felt from a strictly objective perspective. There are many ways to exist in this world, and though it's incredibly hard to step outside of our human perspective, there's a lot to be learned by remaining in touch with the natural world and bearing witness to how other organisms cope with stress and disaster. Sometimes the struggle is truly in the resistance, in the retreat, and resigning ourselves to the chaotic and largely uncontrollable nature of the universe with uh, hope that we'll make it through in some form or another is often the best that we can do in the face of deep suffering. I, of course, can acknowledge that walking up to a tree in a public park to rest your hand on it for a few minutes with your eyes closed is likely to draw some attention and, and judgment from others, but to some extent I think it's necessary to just move past this sort of concern in order to experience what is most enriching and interesting in life. I guess that puts a decent bow on that one, and since we've already entrenched ourselves in the natural world here, I'll jump to another outdoor experience that offers a sometimes much needed perspective shift. It's taking the time to look up at the stars. Now I get that everyone's access to an area with limited light pollution is different, and there's quite a bit of daylight between seeing a handful of stars against a fuzzy night sky and, and literally being able to see the Milky Way with your naked eye. But I think most people are no more than 30 minutes by car away from somewhere that offers enough to get most of what I'll speak to here. So when we look up, I, I guess more accurately out into the universe, we're faced with a reality we live most of our lives not really considering. We exist on a giant rock hurtling through space around a luminous sphere of gas and plasma that's close enough to essentially power life on our planet, but just far enough away to not scorch us all in an instant. And we look at the stars. When we look at the stars, we're seeing hundreds, thousands, even millions, depending on where you are, of similar spheres light years away. And since they're all light years away, we're not even seeing them in their current state. We're in, in some cases essentially seeing snapshots from millions of years ago that even traveling at the speed of light are just now reaching us where we stand. These most basic truths of astronomy are enough to inspire a sense of awe and wonder and curiosity that alone I find to be incredibly valuable. But if we dig just a little bit deeper and examine our place in a universe this vast and unexplored, it it really does become harder and harder to attach the sort of cosmic significance to our day-to-day -day problems and predicaments 
we tend to when we become too self-centered and laser focused on everything that's wrong with ourselves and our lives. Now that's not to say that our problems don't matter, but at times we allow them to carry more weight than they need to when our vision narrows and we forget how mysterious, complex, and awe-inspiring our plane of existence is. We get bogged down by what's directly in front of us and we already have a hard enough time remembering that on our very own planet, there are billions of other experiences happening right now and that many of them are likely facing problems quite similar to ours, no matter how rare ours feel in the moment. Now multiply that by hundreds of millions of potentially habitable planets, I guess based on life as we know it in our galaxy alone, which is one of trillions of galaxies in the known universe, and then pile on things like multiverse and simulation theories, and it seems like every stone you turn over offers more evidence that we're not quite as alone or unique as our first-person experience of reality suggests. The more we look out and question and expand our perspective, the harder it is to label the narrative of our lives as a tragedy or comedy or romance or horror. I think this is often how we suffer the most in life, is by allowing narrative framings and expectations to take over and detach us from direct experience. I might be really going out on a limb by saying this, but maybe my personal favorite genre the nature documentary might be the most useful lens to see our day-to-day lives through. I'm not sure that that will land with anyone, but maybe I'll just leave it at that and, and save that thought experiment for another time. Ultimately, uh, take a look at the stars as, as often as you can. and There's something there that I find helps me remain profoundly interested in existence, keeps my ego in check, and, and provides an abstract sense of comfort. So I think the final experience I'll put forward is sitting near a fire. I guess there's a bit of an unintentional theme emerging here around the natural world, which probably says something about the importance of remaining in touch with it. But anyways, I I think most people have some sort of fond memory uh, surrounding bonfires with their friends or family or roasting marshmallows. That's all great, but what I'm alluding to really doesn't require any of those other variables, though I think whenever you can sit around a fire with others, you ought to. Even if you're alone, there's something about staring into a fire that seems to reach a deep and and primal part of our psyche. Of course, the warmth is nice on a cold evening, but in most cases, you could just go inside and be just as, if not more comfortable. S'mores can be made in the oven. In our modern world, we're just quite detached from the obvious utility of fire. Yet fire pits are still commonplace in backyards across the U.S., and a bonfire still excites most people more than other kinds of gatherings. Fire is, of course, a fascinating element to harness, and watching it dance and keeping it alive can be quite entrancing, but it's not Game of Thrones, and it's not a dog doing backflips off its owner. We've grown arguably too adept at entertaining ourselves, so I think our attraction to fire runs a a bit deeper. To my initial point, I think the value of fire has much more to do with what it used to mean to us as a species. 
on the most basic level, fire was a much needed source of heat to make colder climates more livable. It provided protection from predators and many pests. It made our food taste better and easier to digest. It provided a source of light so that important tasks could still be done when moonlight was limited. It opened many important doors for us as a species, but beyond all, it became a signal for a certain state of mind, uh, a certain ease and peace. Because if there was a robust fire in front of you, your base needs were generally met. Your stomach was likely full or, or soon to be, and you were relatively safe. You were not going to shiver through the night or die of hypothermia. And for a time, you were able to just take a deep breath and let your guard down and dial back the harsh but crucial anxiety of life in the wild and just enjoy the moment. This is, of course, conjecture, but it seems that this was maybe the time when we started telling stories and singing songs and channeling our creativity or sharing our deepest thoughts and doing all sorts of incredibly meaningful things that it hardly made sense to do amidst the daily fight for survival. These are all wonderful and invaluable downstream effects, but to say to stay true to my point, I think the unique utility of fire is that it triggers us to feel as though our base needs are met, which to be fair, at least in the developed world, is actually true, though our brains tend to try to convince us this is not the case. It helps us slow down and calm the monkey brain or even invite it to take a seat next to us by the fire. Even if you don't feel like any of what I've said is really tracking, it's it's easy to forget how comforting a fire can be and the benefits of just maintaining that presence in, in your daily life. Of course, not everyone has access to a fire pit or fireplace, so this might be the hardest one to pull off regularly, but I imagine some similar benefits could be derived by lighting a woodwick candle or even just listening to a recording of burning fire with your eyes closed. Our brains are actually often quite easy to fool and uh, doesn't take much for us to draw on our primal instincts and access a similar state of mind. So our relationship with fire is millions of years old and there's no need to totally neglect it even though we don't technically need it to survive anymore. So I think I've probably been talking longer than anyone ever really wanted to just hear my voice, so I'll wrap things up. But yeah, those are a few experiences that I feel like helped me stay a bit balanced and centered and just in general and in love with my life, despite it it being a, a very mixed bag as of late. So I, I hope the payoff was worth it, despite the somewhat morbid setup there. But at the very least, I think this has been a bit therapeutic for me just to remind myself of these tools and, and orient my thoughts during a, a pretty trying time. I just hope this proves to be useful to some of you, or at least was interesting enough to, to get to know me a bit more and understand where this project is coming from a bit better. But I'll sign off and just say thanks for sticking around if you have, and Please just remember that in whatever struggle you are facing, no matter how large or small, you, you really are not alone. And I'll see you next time.
Thank you.